When I moved from the South to New England, one of the things I learned is that people up here love country music. Sorry, was that not right? I can be slow sometimes. Well, there's an old country song entitled, Live Like You Were Dying. No G on the dying. And uh, the premise of the song uh, is that the singer meets a man who found out he was terminally ill, and the man uh, essentially gives him the advice to live as if he also were dying, which for him meant uh, skydiving and bull riding, climbing the Rockies, and Mark will be excited about this, uh, fishing more. Uh, it also included loving more and forgiving more. Uh, the moral of the song, of course, is that when you're cognizant of your own impending death, it changes the way that you live in the present. You show more initiative in leading a meaningful life. Imagine yourself in this position. What if you got the news that you had but weeks to live? Days to live, perhaps. What would move up to the top of your priority list? What would you be sure to do? Well, if we're honest, it might be something along the lines of that song. A, a mix of some uh, selfish, well, maybe not selfish pursuits, but fun pursuits like skydiving. Uh, and maybe some more worthy goals like forgiving others. But what if Jesus, for example knew that he had but a single day of life left. What sort of things would the perfect Son of God prioritize? Well, actually, we don't have to wonder, because as we come to the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John, this is exactly the position which Jesus finds himself in. Now, all throughout the Gospel, we've heard this refrain, my hour has not yet come. But now in chapter 13, verse 1, we find something else. It says that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and return to the Father. Now, Jesus' public ministry had ceased at the end of chapter 12. Uh, the rest of this gospel consists of his ministry to his disciples, his passion, and then his resurrection. And so we've come to the day of Passover. Late that night, perhaps early the next morning, Jesus will be arrested, tried, and the next day he'll be crucified. He knows he has but a short time left on earth. What does he choose to prioritize? Well, that's a question that we're going to spend the next few months unpacking. In our text today, he's interested in cleansing his disciples. In the rest of chapters 13 to 16, he teaches his disciples in an extended lesson called the Farewell Discourse. In chapter 17, he prays for his disciples. And the rest of the gospel shows him dying and rising again for his disciples. And so as we close out this gospel in the next three months, I just humbly request that you pay special attention to the text. When Jesus knew that his time was nearly gone, this is what he did, this is what he said, and this is what he Prayed. This week we'll focus on what he did. Pick up with me in chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
during the supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Let's pray. Our God and gracious Father, you are so kind and so loving. You're always faithful. You seek to save the lost. You show compassion on those like us who don't deserve it. And you've bought our freedom with the blood of your precious Son, Jesus. Heavenly Father, this morning we pray that you'd speak to us. We pray that this would be a day in which we beheld the glory of God and were changed to be more and more like your Son. Lord, fill our hearts with your joy. Help us to recognize that the good news is truly good news. And Lord, as I open your word this morning, please, by the power of your spirit, for the edification of your saints and for your own glory, please speak through me that I might proclaim nothing but your truth and encourage your people. Jesus, we love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, our first point this morning is that Jesus cleanses his disciples, literally. Uh, These first three verses in chapter 13 set the stage for the rest of the gospel. Uh, We learn three things in these verses. First, Jesus, as God in the flesh, was keenly aware of this coming moment for his entire life. More than anything else, he said, or more than anything else he did, uh, Jesus came for this moment. He came to return to the Father via the cross. Now, verse 1 tells us that Jesus has loved his own in the world throughout his life and that he would love them to the very end. And so he has. He has loved them, but the cross will be the supreme demonstration of God's love for them to die in their place. That's the answer to, to Greg's question. How can we avoid punishment? Well, Christ bore the punishment for us. But we must also note that when we come to our second point today, Verse 1 makes an important distinction. The distinction between the world and his own. Jesus, of course, will develop this later in chapter 17 in his famous high priestly prayer. In verse 6 there it says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And so Jesus is making a clear distinction. There is the world, which is everyone on earth, And there are the people of God, which is a subset. Now, Western culture hates binaries, but the scriptures and uh, the scriptures are unambiguous here. Uh, The people of God are in the world, but we are not of the world. And while it is correct to say that there's a sense in which God loves the whole world, as John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, It is also correct to say that Jesus has a special saving love for his own sheep. Well, the third thing we learn from these verses is what you already knew. uh, That one of Jesus' own disciples, one of the twelve closest to Jesus, was a fraud. He was of the world. He certainly postured himself as if he were a follower. uh, But in reality, he was not. And we'll tuck that away for a moment. We'll come back to that in point 
to. Uh, as we consider this symbolic washing that Jesus does to his disciples. Now, if you've been around the church for very long, you're undoubtedly familiar with the story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Jesus takes off his outer garment, and he takes on the appearance and the posture of a slave. Now, uh, the twelve are seated at a table, and back in this day, they, they didn't really use chairs. I don't know why, but they would sit on the ground, lean back on the person behind them, and they, their feet would be uh, jutting out from the table. If you ever come over to my house, that's how we eat as well. I'm just kidding. But Jesus gets up from the table, and he does the unthinkable. He washes their feet. Now, foot washing was not an uncommon practice. People traveled on dirty, dusty, uh, manure-infested roads, and they did so on foot. And so it was a, a necessary practice. The part that was unthinkable is that Jesus, the rabbi, the master, the Lord, that he would stoop so low to wash the feet of his disciples. This was something that you could hardly even ask a Jewish slave to do. It was reserved for non-Jew slaves because it was considered so degrading. But we're told that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. All authority in heaven and on earth belonged to Jesus, and yet look at him stoop on his knees and humble himself in a symbolic action for his disciples. And I say this as a symbolic action, like his anointing before his burial uh, by Mary. The question then is how do we interpret the symbol? How are we supposed to understand what Jesus is acting out here? Well, the good news is Jesus interprets it for us in our text today. And he will do so uh, in two ways. There is a primary meaning and there is a secondary meaning. Uh, his washing of his disciples is meaningful in a way that cannot be imitated. And it is meaningful in a way that can and should be imitated. Are you intrigued? Are you awake? We have coffee. All right. Well, let's consider the first way, which cannot be imitated, in verses 6 to 11. Pick up with me in verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but he's completely clean. And you all are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. That's why he said, Not all of you are clean. Uh, in reading the Bible, I often find myself thankful to God for Simon Peter. Because Simon Peter is evidence that loving Jesus can make up for a lot of stupid ideas and character flaws. Uh, Peter is evidence of God's gracious attitude toward imperfect, sinful humanity. When I'm tempted to doubt God's love for me when I sin, I think of Peter. <laughs> Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times right after this scene. Uh, Peter, the one who started doubting Jesus after he was walking on water. The Peter who often and regularly spoke without thinking. Yes, this Peter was the rock. 
upon which Christ built his church. Jesus starts doing something very strange, and the rest of the disciples, when they don't understand what Jesus is doing, they've just learned to keep their mouths shut, because he tends to know what he's doing. Peter hasn't figured that out yet, but you've got to love his honesty. Peter, it's Peter's turn, and Jesus comes to him and he says, Jesus, you would wash my feet? And the implication is clearly that it should be the reverse. And Jesus is kind. He says, you don't understand, but you will. And Peter's like, no, you don't understand. I'm the servant. I'm the disciple. You're the master. And in the Greek, he's even more emphatic. He says, you will never wash my feet forever. Well, consider Jesus' patience and his grace and his love in this response. And dear friends, we're reminded that God is so patient and loving and kind with his beloved children. Just remember that we're all a process. <laughs> and God is so patient. Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. He says, Peter, you don't get to associate with me. You don't get to be part of my people unless I wash you. And now, now we've gotten to the heart of this symbolism. Dear friends, if you desire a share of the eternal kingdom which God has prepared for those who love him, you cannot receive your share unless you've been washed in the blood of his son. See, if you come away from this passage thinking that Jesus is concerned about clean feet, you've missed the point by a mile. Jesus is demonstrating for his disciples the significance of his upcoming crucifixion. Foot washing was a very humble act by Jesus, but listen, it doesn't even scratch the surface of his humility, as Paul points out in Philippians. We have a slide for this, Philippians chapter 2. Jesus' entire life, and especially his death, was the singular demonstration of God's love and humility. It says, Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he did what? How, what, was, what was this great act of humility on the part of Christ? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The ultimate act of humiliation was when the eternal almighty God humbled himself, took on flesh, and died in the place of sinners. Why? Well, because unless you are washed by him, you have no share with him. God's word and human history are unambiguous. We humans are tarnished and we're polluted by sin. And God is pure. He's radiantly pure and holy. And he will not tolerate sin in his presence. And that's bad news for us. And so the gospel begins with bad news before it gets to good news. Now, you may not like this truth. You may not think that you're that bad, so to speak, but it doesn't make it less true. I think of, uh, well, let me ask you have, you, have you ever been on an airplane with someone who has excruciatingly severe body odor? I was on a group trip one time, and uh, a few rows behind me, uh, I heard a few comments like this. Oh, my. <laughs> What's that smell? Uh, did something die on the airplane? It's horrible. Now, I knew the source of the smell. I knew who it was, which is why I was sitting rows and rows ahead. You see, his body odor was 
painfully apparent to everyone, well, everyone except him. A few days later, I finally worked up the courage to, to talk to him about it, and I said, hey, man, you're my friend, but you really stink, and I don't mean that figuratively. Uh, you need to bathe more. And his response was, well, you know, it doesn't really bother me. I don't think it's that big of a deal. And I said, well, it bothers everyone around you. <laughs> Dear friends, this is all of us in our sin. We are oblivious until God opens our spiritual eyes, or in, in this case, our spiritual noses, uh, to the reality of our putrid stench of sin. Uh, what did this guy need? Uh, he needed to be washed. Uh, perhaps pressure sprayed with Clorox. I don't know. <laughs> you see, it's upon looking at the radiant purity of Christ that we then gaze upon ourselves again and we recognize that despite our own impressions of ourselves, we've all fallen short. We're a stench. We've made ourselves obnoxious to the Almighty. We've rejected His design. We've rejected His demands. And, and if you're outside of Christ, your sin may not be obvious to you. But trust me, it's obvious to God. Now, Christianity is not concerned with good people trying really hard to be good. Christianity is about a God who loves stinky, gross, bad, rebellious people, sinners. And taking on flesh, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. But listen, nobody is washed in the blood of Christ until they recognize that they need it. I pray that's true of all of us this morning. Jesus says, you have no share with me unless I wash you. The good news of Christianity is that you can be washed. It's a gift of God to you. You can be completely washed clean of your sins through Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is intended, like the foot washing, to represent. It's intended to represent what Christ does for us spiritually. He purifies us. And so Jesus' reply to Peter is still relevant for you today. I want to ask, have you recognized your own need of the washing of Christ? Have you been washed in the blood of Christ and had your sins washed away? Well, like I said, I love Peter. Peter gets a little excited by this. He says, well, don't stop at my feet, Jesus. I've got hands, I've got a head. Let's wash everything. And uh, he misses the point again, but eventually he gets it. Now, there's a little bit of debate as to what Jesus means in verse 10. Uh, I think his main point here is clear, and I've just given that. Uh, if you'd like to, to quibble over details later, I'm happy to do that following the service. Jesus' main point is that the disciples are clean precisely because Jesus has spiritually washed them, and he can do so because of what he's about to do on the cross. But he also points out that one of them is not clean, and that's Judas. Well, this is the first meaning of the foot washing. This is what we are not called to imitate because we cannot imitate it. None of us can bear the wrath of God against human sin. That was something Jesus uniquely was suited to do. But there is a second meaning here, which we are called to imitate. And we'll pick up with that in verse 12. Now, when Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not like greatness in the world. Those who do not trust in the God who sees all things are forced to seek their greatness by drawing attention to themselves. Just listen to professional athletes or politicians. It's always all about them. Uh, And oftentimes, even those who are trying to do good deeds and serve others just can't help but post pictures and videos of it to social media so others can see what they're doing and like and comment. Truly, I say to you, they have had their reward. Jesus here will remind us of a theme of his teaching. We find this all over the place. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not found in exercising authority or drawing attention to yourself. Greatness in the kingdom of God is found in humble service, in trusting that God's opinion is the only one that truly matters. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 20. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That last verse is our our theme of the day. Jesus' death on the cross, first and foremost, means we can be washed clean. But for those who have been washed clean, there's a clear and necessary implication here, Jesus says. There's a proper response to grace. We are called to imitate Christ in the ways he's called us to. Now, Jesus' argument, of course, is from the infinitely greater to the lesser. And he wants to make clear there's no exceptions to this principle. He says, if I'm your Lord and teacher, which I am, and if I humble myself and do something degrading, like washing your filthy feet, then you should do the same. And if I'm willing to lay down my own life because I love you, then you should lay down your lives for those whom I love. Dear friends, if we're called to lay down our lives in love, that means everything else is on the table. Our comfort, our convenience, our finances, our time, our rights. Sometimes we're called to lay any and all of these down for the sake of loving Christ and serving the body. Which is why, again, if you come to this passage and you think this is literally a command to wash feet, you're really missing the point. It's never been about the feet. If you don't believe me, just skip down to verse 34. We'll hit it next week. But Jesus, as he sums up this whole teaching, says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now, here at our church, we belong to a more contemplative Christian tradition in that we see great value in learning and knowing and studying the word of God. And that's a good thing. But there can also be a danger in this. And James calls this danger being a hearer of the word while not being a doer. I was probably guilty of this in seminary. Uh, We can be so caught up in learning about God and learning his word that we forget to obey it. Knowing the word of God is really, really important. 
But the mark of your greatness in the kingdom of God is not how much you know, but how much God's love has changed you. How much are you willing to sacrifice in love for God and for your brothers and sisters in Christ? You see, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are you if you know these things, if you won the Bible study award. No, he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. As your pastor, I'm far less concerned with whether or not you can define humble service to the body, although I hope you can, and I'm far more concerned with whether the Spirit of God is compelling you in love and joy to serve the body, and if you find joy in that. Now, I'm not trying to rag on you. Uh, this is actually an incredibly generous church, both financially and with your time. Many of you know this, but every week there is someone here figuratively washing feet, except in this case they're they're cleaning toilets. <laughs> you know, every week there's somebody downstairs cleaning toilets, no social media presence, no fanfare, no one recognizing that they're serving the body. And yet there they are. Uh, this week, there were people who got here at 8.30 shoveling the sidewalks to make sure that people could get to church. Uh, just yesterday, roughly seven people showed up and started fixing up our kids, our new kids' classroom so we can have a safe, clean place for us to invest in our children with the Word of God. Uh, I just want to fan the flames of this. I just want to encourage you in your service. And I'll leave you anonymous so I don't steal your heavenly reward. Jesus insists over and over again that Christian maturity is not found merely in head knowledge. It's revealed in sacrificial service to the body from a heart that loves God. And so that's our Second meaning of the foot cleansing. It's a call, a summons to love one another sacrificially. Let's keep going. Our second point this morning will be much shorter. Can I get an amen? No? Okay, well, I'll go longer then. Uh, Jesus, <laughs> we'll finish chapter 13. Uh, Jesus literally cleansed his disciples in washing their feet. He now cleanses them figuratively in verses 18 to 30. So pick it with me in verse 18. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, 
he immediately went out, and it was night. For three years, Jesus traveled with a traitor. For three years, Judas put on a show of righteousness while he was helping himself to the ministry money bag. Jesus now wants to reveal to his disciples that among his sheep there is a wolf clothed in sheep's clothing, a predator among the flock. And Jesus wants his disciples to have no illusions. Yes, I was aware of this from the beginning. As he says in verse 19, so that when the betrayal comes, you will know, you will know that I am. It's Jesus using the divine name again. In addition to this, Jesus quotes from Psalm 41, verse 9. Uh, he says, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. It's a prophecy of painful betrayal of one's close companion, one's friend. It's, it's one that David himself experienced many times where his close associates would betray him. And it's a reminder to us that uh, the Old Testament is historically, uh, it's rooted in history, but it's also written to teach us about Jesus Christ. David is a type of the Christ to come. He's the king of Israel who suffers for the sake of his people, just as Christ is the king of Israel who suffers in a much greater way for the benefit of his people. And so Jesus saw this betrayal coming, and yet... The betrayal was itself necessary to accomplish redemption. Now, in verse 20, Jesus recognizes some pretty traumatic stuff is about to happen. I don't know if you've realized this, but the disciples have no clue uh, that the end is so close. Even though Jesus has been telling them throughout their life, they have no idea what's about to happen. And so Jesus is trying to encourage them in verse 20. He says, he says, don't worry. You're still chosen by God and sent by God. You are my emissaries. The one who accepts you accepts me and ultimately accepts the Father. And this upcoming betrayal will not change that. And so Jesus has revealed that there is a wolf. In verses 21 to 26, he moves to identify the wolf. He says to his disciples, one of you will betray me. Disciples are all in denial, understandably. And so Peter discreetly texts John, the beloved disciple, says, hey, find out who he's talking about, LOL. John leans back and says, Jesus, who are you talking about? Jesus responds to John. He says, the one whom I give this morsel of bread to. And he dips some bread and he hands it to Judas and in a perverse parody of the Lord's Supper, Judas takes the bread of the one whom he hates and is seeking to kill. And it's at that moment we find that Satan enters into him. And this is not excusing Judas. He's been rotten from the beginning. It just shows you that Satan doesn't want to be left out of doing damage to the flock. Can you imagine this moment? Can you imagine what Jesus has been doing one by one, he was kneeling before his disciples and washing their feet. At some point, he would have been washing Judas's feet. Talk about loving your enemy. Well, that time's passed, and the time has now come to remove the traitor and allow him to perform his role. Jesus is cleansing his flock. He turns to Judas and he says, What you do, do quickly. 
Now, the others still haven't caught on that Judas is the betrayer, but Judas obeys and he leaves and goes to betray innocent blood while the other disciples are rationalizing his departure. As further evidence that God is an artistic author of history, we're told that it is nighttime when sinners hide their deeds under the cover of darkness. Judas and his powerful new friends, the rulers of Israel, they will do to Jesus in the dark what they did not have the courage to do to Jesus in the light as he walked freely in the temple courts unarmed. Let's close with two applications. If you've been around church very long, you know that when church goes right, when we're united around the gospel, when Christ is clearly king and the people of God genuinely love one another in costly and sacrificial ways, that when this is happening, church can be the most amazing thing in all the world. You see, the most incredible acts of selflessness and love that I've seen in my life and that I've experienced in my life, I've seen done by ordinary Christians saved by grace who love Jesus and who want to show the love of Jesus to others. And when you just get a taste of what the church can be, it's the most compelling community you could ever be part of. It's truly a taste of heaven on earth, a brotherly love greater than that which you can experience in your own family. But if you've spent much in time, if you've spent much time in church, you know that the opposite can also be true. The most incredible acts of selfishness, greed, and vile divisiveness I've seen, I've experienced in churches that I've attended. Now, I recognize the same things and often worse things happen outside the church, but what makes it so painful in the church is that these sins are brought about by those claiming to represent Jesus. Sometimes even by those who take on the name of pastor. Brothers and sisters, the story of Judas is here to remind us that Satan loves doing violence to the kingdom of God. He hates the church because the church is the bride of Christ. Sinners saved by grace to shine the light of Christ into a dark world. We are trophies of God's grace. And Satan wants to take us all down. He loves wreaking havoc in the church. And if you are in Christ, you are his target best thing you can do is to draw near to Christ. Resist Satan. When you sin, bring it quickly to God for forgiveness. Don't let Satan get a foothold in your heart. But I want to remind you of one more thing. Satan does sometimes score goals in the church, and it really stinks when he does. He has scored goals many times in FBC Medfield's history, and undoubtedly, he will score some goals in our future. But remember that he's down by a million points, and he will never win this game. I want you to notice the sovereignty of God in our text. As Satan moves to seal what he believes is his biggest win yet, he only truly seals his own fate. Yeah, he got Judas. Yeah, he sent Jesus to the cross. But this was all the plan of God from the beginning. 
because it was necessary that the Son of Man should die at the hands of men, that he should die in the place of men and women, and so through the blood of the spotless Lamb we can be redeemed. Do you realize that? That Satan at his most malicious cannot help but serve the purposes of God. God used his evil to accomplish a much greater good. And friends, even when really ugly sin happens in the church, when Satan rages against God, he can't help but serve as an instrument in God's divine and wonderful purpose to accomplish great things, wonderful things, which Satan himself couldn't possibly have imagined. As we close today, as you go home and listen to Tim McGraw thinking about the brevity of life, I want you to consider Jesus Christ, that when he knew that his hour had come, the first thing he did was to demonstrate for his disciples what it looks like to love one another selflessly. And let us consider the priority of that selfless love in our own lives as we dismiss. Let's pray.